It is Tuesday, April 12th, 2016 at one o'clock Eastern time. It is free cone day at Ben and Jerry's and this is a special edition of Higher Ed Live. I'm your host, Ashley Budd, digital strategist at Cornell University and producer here at Higher Ed Live. On today's live broadcast, I'm tagging in our network founder, Seth O'Dell, to give us the download on the state of online education. Since stepping back from the Higher Ed Live limelight, he's spent the past few years in the trenches of online EDU, and he's ready to spill insights with his unique perspective from inside this niche in our industry. Higher Ed Special Edition is part of the Higher Ed Live Network, offering viewers direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. Live broadcasts allow viewers to share knowledge and participate in discussions along with the most important issues in our industry. Today's live viewing experience is powered by Maestro. If you want to see the Maestro platform, head over to along with the most important You can do what I just did and head over to watch.higheredlive.com to see Maestro in action. All episodes of Higher Ed Special Edition are free and accessible in the video archives at higheredlive.com and in podcast format at iTunes. Today's episode, this particular episode itself, is made possible by Funnelback, an on-site search engine that engages your students by uniting content from across your university website, combs it with relevant promotions and exciting search tools such as course finders, expertise finders, location-based searches. Uh, Your search strategy will be enriched by meaningful insights into your users' needs and habits ensuring that you don't lose your current or prospective students to the competition. Hired Live is produced by M. Stoner, a marketing and communications firm that works with education institutions on branding, strategy, web design, and more. We are calling all storytellers. Uh, M. Stoner is offering a free webinar on the anatomy of a story led by CEO and co-founder Voltaire Maron. And this session takes place on April 27th, they will dive into the fun into the foundational aspects of a story, uh, those that engage imagination and spark emotion. Voltaire will explore the ways in which uh, in which you should use your storytelling techniques to reveal and build your brand. Registration is free, and we're tweeting out the link where you can sign up. My guest today is Seth O'Dell. He serves as Vice President of Creative and Marketing Strategy for Helix Education. Seth collaborates with colleges and universities to develop their brands, craft meaningful messages, and deliver integrated results-driven campaigns. Uh, Seth has had quite the journey uh, through our wide, vast industry that is higher education and uh He's a dear friend. I'm so excited to have him back on High Red Live. And without further ado, I want to welcome Seth O'Dell to our broadcast. Hey, Ash. It's awesome to be back. Uh, hard to believe. I think it's been almost two years since I was on an episode. Uh, but I follow the network every week. Love all the work you're doing. Uh, Mallory and M. Stoner is doing all the other hosts. Uh, and very excited uh, to be back this time on, on this side of things. Well, Seth, for our uh, viewers today that don't know much about the Odell journey, um, you just kind of just give us a quick uh, recap of <laughs> where you started, <laughs> um, you know, your journey from UCLA to Southern New Hampshire and now to Helix. What was that like? 
Absolutely. So the way I like to tell people is um, higher ed is in my blood. I'm the grandson of a college president of Nazareth College and Sacred Heart. Uh, my grandmother built out the first adult advising program in a junior college in Albany. So uh, really, this is an industry that I, I'm really, really grateful to have found myself in. So uh, as I said, I worked at UCLA uh, for just a little shy of five years. Um, I was really uh, lucky to be part of what I call kind of the first uh, social boom in higher ed. So it was, you know, the 2007 to 2011 window. Uh, we were all trying to figure out this Facebook and Twitter stuff. Um, and it was a blast. Uh, started doing video in media relations, moved into marketing with one of their graduate programs. Uh, and then in 2011, moved to Southern New Hampshire University. So it was a big leap from Los Angeles. Uh, still miss it. Um, but I really wanted to work in the adult and online space specifically. It was an area of the industry I knew was growing and I really uh, wanted to be on the forefront of it. And so... I was lucky enough to have three jobs with Southern New Hampshire University, um, my final one being an AVP of integrated marketing. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get to be really responsible for getting to help concept, uh, write, art direct, oversee their, their creative strategy for their national advertising. So um, to put it simply, I always tell people, if you've ever seen that bus tour, they drive around, you know, that I was on that bus. Um, so that was the work I got to do. It was um, an amazing time, really amazing growth for everybody. If you're tuning in today, you probably are following the space. You know kind of the growth that SNHU experienced. Uh, had an absolute wonderful time there. The team there is just an immense talent. I was very lucky to work with some of the some of the finest folks in our industry. Uh, and then just in July, I took the leap to uh, Helix Education, and I moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, of all places. Um, and Helix is a data-driven enrollment growth agency. We essentially do three things. We do outsource program management where we help schools launch, grow, and manage online programs, kind of soup to nuts. We also have a full-service enrollment marketing agency, everything from media buying to digital, direct mail, you name it, we do it, and do it really, really incredibly well. Uh, and then finally, we also have a really unique retention uh, services solution. And so all of this is really with a primary focus on the post-traditional space at Helix as well. We work with traditional and post-traditional, um, but, but post-traditional is really our, our specialty and our sweet spot, um, which is what brought me here. Because same thing with SNU is I was following the emergence of online education and, and focusing on adults. And so I kind of had this uh, meandering career. I always tell people it's like if you read the family circus ads and the kids going around with the dotted lines, I feel like sometimes that's me. Uh, moving back and forth cross country multiple times, but um, very happy to have landed in Utah. Uh, happy to be on the agency side, working a lot of schools, and uh, and just excited to be here today to talk about it. I'm excited to have you here. <coughs> For those that are watching along, please don't hesitate to ask uh, questions to Seth. You can use the Higher Ed Live hashtag on Twitter, and I'll do my best to ask those as they come in. But first, we will start with a few questions of my own. Um, so where I sit in higher ed and what I read in the news, it seems like the online education space is still growing at a breakneck pace. Is that true? Uh, so yes and no, and no more importantly, and that's what's really interesting. Um, supply is growing like crazy in the online space, um, but demand is not. And that's one of the first things that I think most people don't actually realize um, is that demand for online programs specifically is growing at its slowest rate ever, according to the Sloan Consortium, which is really a, a thought leader in our space. Uh, and that's over the past 20 years. So while there is some growth in online education, it is slowing and slowing significantly. Um, it was 2014, we had about 2.65 million students studying fully online. Um, not a huge portion of the population when you think about it. And that growth is slowing. Um, more importantly, and the point that I think people don't realize is overall post-secondary education, so that's traditional and non-traditional, is also in decline. Uh, between 2014 and 2015, our industry actually lost 1.7% of our enrollment in one year. And within that, when you dig into it, the for-profit space lost 13%. 13% of the enrollments in a single 
year. And now it's not just the fact that uh, the economy is improving, which is a part of it. Uh, obviously, our industry, is, as everybody knows, is really it's countercyclical. So the better the economy does, the less likely people, people are to pursue their education. If they can get that job without that credential, a lot of times they will. When that economy starts to slow down, people are looking to kind of tool up. And that's really what a lot of times drives that enrollment uh, demand. The other thing that people don't realize is high school graduation rates in this country are actually in decline and not going to reach the peak they were in 2009 for almost another up to 10 years, five to 10 years, really. And so it, that's purely a baby boom population statistic, but it's an important one if you work in the traditional campus, because the reality is uh, when we talk about online education growing, supply, yeah, it's growing like crazy. We are all rushing to this space, but demand is at its slowest rate ever. And overall for our industry, we are an industry in decline. Uh, and I think it's something that a lot of people don't realize. And especially because we, we read Ed Surge, which is great. You know, we read all the ed tech moves. We, we really are following the space and it's an exciting time. It really is. But I think sometimes we kind of forget the um, kind of economic factors that are going on behind the scenes sometimes. Uh, and we kind of sometimes let the headlines get ahead of ourselves. Um, so overall, supply is up, but demand really unequivocally is down. Great. I mean, I'm familiar with the decline in enrollments at the traditional campus. That's something that enrollment professionals have been trying to hack, I'd say, um, uh, especially since its peak um, after our economic decline um you know there are parts of the country where enrollments are driving up but where i sit in the northeast and where many of our institutions set um serious decline um you know in graduation rates out of at a high school not because students aren't graduating um but because there's just less of them yeah. um so uh very familiar with that decline at the traditional campus but you know isn't that what we're struggling with in our enrollment management programs, um, isn't that what's driving the desire for institutions to grow their online presence? They're trying to make up for the butts and seats. Um, they're recognizing that the Southwest of the continent actually has an increase in uh, students that are ready to enroll. Um, California is saturated with enrollment and um, maybe we can pull some folks who um, aren't willing to make the move uh, and, and be on a residential campus, but might be willing to enroll online. Isn't that part of some of that rationale? Totally. Absolutely. You know, the reality is, I think the pressures that campuses are feeling um, is definitely one of the primary factors behind this decision and, and desire to grow online, especially uh, for the institutions that are the small private tuition-based institutions. So these are the ones that don't have the large research grants or reputations, the ones that don't have a large endowment to help really subsidize their operations. For those small private 1,500 to 5,000 student populations in the private space, especially, they are looking to online to really supplement that income and open up a new revenue stream. I think there's a lot of institutions that are seeing the success that a handful of players in this space are having, and they're thinking, well, if we could just have a piece of that. You know, if we could just grow our enrollment by 1,000 students online or 100 students online, what a difference that would make to us. And so we are seeing that really across the board. Uh, when surveyed, you know, 70% of chief academic leaders at institutions cite online education as a key pillar of their strategy moving forward, um, which I, I will say we have a pedagogy conversation overall I think is great. Um, but when 70% of people say it's a key pillar moving forward and at the same time we're seeing the demand decline, it's really a, a scary reality. Because for a lot of folks, if you're turning to online education to solve an enrollment problem, it's going to be a really difficult problem to solve. And it can be solved, and some are solving it, but it's going to be a lot more challenging than you think. 
And so what's happened is a lot of institutions are struggling on campus and saying, can we supplement this with a new revenue stream? Can we open up a new modality? Tap into a lot, for a lot of people, it's either to tap into the adult market they haven't really been serving or to expand the, the current services they have in the adult space. Because there are a lot of great small private players that have made a real difference in their communities uh, starting in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, launching programs that worked for busy adults. And for a lot of them, they're starting to see a decline in campus enrollment. So they're seeing that, that people are no longer going to take classes at night or on the weekend because they no longer have to. And so if they're not launching that online program, the reality is they're losing those students to national players in the online space that are. Uh, and we saw that at SNHU. We saw hundreds of students in cities all over the country that we'd go to, and we'd be picking up hundreds of students in St. Louis, hundreds of students in Nashville. And we'd wonder, it's amazing that these students are coming to us and not to a local player, but a lot of times it's because those small local players weren't expanding as much into that space. And so we have seen that expansion. It's coming, it's happening. Um, but what it's ha caused is really a saturation in the market because that demand is still in decline, and then supply is, I mean, way up in some areas of our industry, absurdly up in a couple pockets. And so that's really what we're finding our in is within the online education space, we're all kind of crowding to the same party, to the same pockets in the industry, and really oversaturating these few specific areas, while really to an extent leaving a couple other areas that offer good opportunities still a little bit untapped. Great. I've got a question from Alfredo. Uh, he's yeah. a software developer at LinkedIn, and he's asking about, um, about the education industry as a whole. Um, so if, you know, if Universities are adopting online education. Um, where, where else are we seeing this? Are we seeing it in elementary, high school? You know, is it, I guess that's um, looking to kind of solve an academic um, problem rather than just an enrollment problem. Um, you know, what's what's the academic side of this? Totally. So, from just the peer modality perspective. We're definitely seeing that. Uh, I mean, within even the elementary and middle and high school levels, there really is a shift to doing some components of online. And so there are and there have been actually for several years, you know, fully online high schools. Um, but within that, there is sort of supplemental education that's taking part, especially if you're looking for it, if you look for it in the off-peak time. So summer programs are areas where students can keep up programs that can specifically help them reach current goals like graduation rates. Um, so that is happening and should happen, absolutely. Um, and it needs to be a focus. And it also, I should say, you know, currently today I've talked really about the adult side of things, but online is beginning to play a bigger and bigger role within the traditional education space as well. And what we're really seeing is this shift in conversation that we used to talk about blended and hybrid and they sort of meant the same thing. And now we're talking about hybrid education as a single class where you can move between online and in-person modality and then really blended as programs where you have entire classes in one or the other. And that level of detail, I think, is just showing sort of the depths that, that we're starting to get to and talking about it. Um, because I think it's a really fair point. It's not just a conversation of fully online programs or not. It's really a conversation of what we're trying to achieve and how online education can help achieve that. Um, so I'm, I mean, I'm fully in support uh, of the work that's being done in the, you know, the elementary, high school level education, absolutely. Um, and I actually think within that population, we're seeing a real uh, warmth and welcoming to it. Um, it's a population that's really embraced it a lot more in some cases in the past than adults, although I think that uh, adults really at this point in 2016, not only is, a, is online uh, really being embraced, but also it's even being embraced by the research that's showing it can be as rigorous uh, and as effective as a traditional offering. Great. So uh, it sounds like um, elementary, high school, it, there's there's room to grow there. Um, from a, if we're getting back to kind of the, the business of online education, um, what areas are the, in, in the most saturated, um, in, in the space? Is it, uh, and where might we want to back off from our, uh, our new strategies if there's not a lot of room to grow there? 
So that's a really great question. Um, and and uh, I'll help clarify Alfredo here. Within the post-traditional, within the, the collegiate level specifically, um, when we look at colleges and universities, um, there's really, I mean, the first area that we're seeing oversaturated without question is the graduate level programs. And so when you look at graduate education, there's a couple things to consider. Obviously, it's a smaller population than the undergraduate population. And, uh, and also, its demand is more impacted by economic situations a lot of times. But what we're seeing is schools are rushing to launch graduate programs first. And there's really two reasons for this. Um, the first is politically, it's usually easier to launch a graduate program at a university than it is to bring on something like an undergraduate program because typically it's owned under a single dean, under a single school, and there's just a, a straighter line for approval. But more importantly, the reality is that launching a graduate program online is simply more affordable. Uh, if a graduate program has 12 to 18 classes, that's just going to be more affordable to bring online than it will be for an undergraduate program that has up to 40 programs or even possibly more. And so what we're seeing is a lot of schools are moving into the space specifically in the grad area and specifically in MBA. I can't tell you how many online, I mean, we have, well, I can tell you, we have over 450 online MBAs in this industry right now. Um, I mean, that is, that is crazy high. Um, and we're seeing more and more. And so if you track, you know, the, the pay-per-click rates for certain programs, like an online MBA, I mean, good luck bidding on it. It's going to be so expensive. So really, the grad space and the certificate space, and, and typically, I think that's because it's the most affordable thing that schools can bring online. It takes the least amount of time. It's the fastest they can move. And so it makes sense. You know, we are reacting, so we got to move online. So we're going to move to the area that we can get on the fastest. And so really, specifically in the MBA space, but the grad space as a whole, certificate space, I, I'm seeing really a heavy saturation and flood to market right now. So for the institutions that are looking to launch and actually grow an online program, what can they do and should they be looking at? Yeah, so that's a really good question because we get that all the time with people that we work with here at Helix where they say, okay, well, are there still areas to win? And the answer is unequivocally, yes, there are absolutely areas in the market where you can win. Um, I'll start with some of the bigger ones and move to the some more granular. Um, but the first one is, is undergraduate programs as a whole. Uh, the undergraduate space is just still not seeing the same level of offerings as the graduate space. And the reason is, just as I mentioned before, it's a lot more expensive to bring on, especially when you realize it's 40 classes and only a handful of those are going to be gen ed. And so those specialties are going to be harder and harder to share. The other challenge with the undergraduate programs, and this is a reason why it's underserved and people can still come in and win, is the reality that there's over 34 million Americans in this country right now that have some form of credit but no credential. And these are people that started school and didn't finish. So those folks are looking to pick up where they left off. They want to finish what they started, and so they want to transfer credits in. But when you start to market an undergraduate program and you have people coming in the front door at all different points, it's a lot harder to manage. And so what we're seeing is the smaller private institutions that are coming in on their own, a lot of times are having a bit of a challenge seeding cohorts. Because how do you handle a student that transfers in 30 credits or 60 credits, or if you're really being transfer friendly, up to 90, which is really the max? How do you take students at all those stages and have cohorts ready at all those stages so you can actually seat those classes? So undergraduate education, especially for the adult student that's trying to transfer in credits and finish their degree, absolutely underserved. Uh, the second really is there still are some unique and specialty graduate programs that, that definitely have room to grow. Uh, using programmatic analysis or looking at research, there are absolutely pockets you can figure this out. Um, and then the last thing that I would say is, is really it's about breadth and then depth. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with having an online MBA, to be honest, actually. There's still a large demand for MBAs. But what's really we're seeing the growth in is instead of having a single online MBA, is having 10 MBAs. And maybe it's an MBA in healthcare, an MBA in marketing. And now that core is shared. But those specialties can, be, can actually float not just across the MBA, but the healthcare can float across an MBA in healthcare and an MS in healthcare or a marketing degree with a healthcare concentration. And so that is an area where it starts to get a little bit more complicated, but those are the areas you can win. Um, there is no silver bullet. There is no aha program that you launch and it's perfect. 
um, but there absolutely is a strategy way to approach your programmatic offerings that really work. Um, but I'll say all that being said, and the product is always the most important thing, the experience provided to students is most important. Um, if institutions are looking to launch or grow online programs, they need to refine and rethink their marketing strategy um, because the things that worked in marketing online education five years ago aren't working today. And uh, people need to think a little bit differently. And so that to me, I think is really the, the second biggest thing. The first thing is, are you offering what people want? Uh, and it's surprisingly easy to measure that. The second is, if they are, how are you getting in front of them and convincing them that, that you're really the right right place for them to find home? Awesome. Well, we've got a question coming in um, from Chris Alexander. Yeah. And I think we're going to, we planned to jump into this, but, um, you know, what, as we're talking about different kinds of programs that are either saturated or, or uh, winning areas for growth, I think this is a perfect time to ask this. Um, can you compare general EDU, online bachelor's degree programs, versus some of the specialized skill programs like data analytics, design? Um, I'm thinking about boot camps. Yeah. Um, if you're seeing any, any kinds of trends there. Okay, awesome question. And Chris, how's it going? Anyone who hasn't listened to Chris's podcast, please do. Um, Chris, throw a link out in the back channel. Uh, you know how that works. Uh, so a uh, great question. So a couple things. In the general education and the adult undergraduate space, we're not seeing significant trends. Uh, what we're just seeing is really maintained demand. I mean, there's out of the 34 million, there's about 31 million of those folks that are adults in this country right now with a credit and no credential that went to school in the last 20 years. Now, for those folks, the shift we're seeing is not in programmatic offering, but the shift we're seeing is in marketing. Those are adults that are on the fence. Those are adults, a lot of times for undergraduate, they've been out of school for four to seven years. They've thought about going to school for up to five of those. And when they make that decision to finally go, they actually can inquire and start the enrollment process in as little as 30 days. And so what we're seeing is one fundamental shift. In the past, we used to only market to folks that were raising their hand, folks that actually expressed an interest saying, I'm ready to go back to school. And now we're seeing players that are winning by marketing to folks that are on the fence that maybe they thought about it a few years ago, but they weren't so sure. And so in the, especially in the adult undergraduate space, what I'm seeing is a shift to more emotional advertising, a shift to the way we communicate to not just in, you know, inform, but to actually inspire to, and to push that level of action. Um, when we look at some of the specialty skilled programs, um, there's two levels to that. Within the kind of traditional credential space, data analytics and some of those things are definitely big. BI is definitely big. But there's one caveat with that, too. Um, a lot of those programs, when you look at business intelligence, data analytics, uh, there's huge, huge employer demand for them. I'm right here in Salt Lake City. We are actually one of the bigger tech hubs in the country. Um, huge demand for those. The challenge is those are demands by employers, not to necessarily demands from the market. And so what we're seeing is a lot of those jobs, there's two things. One, they are jobs that you can get if you can prove proficiency independently of a credential. And secondly, the reality is that employers sometimes want it more than the market does. And so while there are exceptions to that, and I actually do think data analytics and some of those pockets are very interesting and we're watching them closely, it's also something that we kind of caveat and say just because employers want to hire a graduate with this program in five years doesn't mean today anybody wants to enroll. And that Doesn't needs to be people like playing with Excel and Tableau. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, you, you, some, yeah, you're going to need to, if you want to work in that space. Um, and then the last piece, uh, and we'll tip the hand because this was, you were going to have at some point was um, boot camps. So the biggest shift I would say is uh, in January of this year, the, the department of ed rolled out a pilot program where for profit 
kind of boot camp oriented programs can actually access federally backed financial aid through a partnership with a nonprofit institution. So they essentially can use the nonprofit's relationship to get financial aid. That is purely in a pilot stage, but let me be super, super candid. If that exits pilot, that is a fundamental game changer in the skill-based portion of our industry. Um, Because the reality is, if you look at the higher ticket items, if you look at like a general assembly at a Boston, phenomenal outcomes, doing really well, but very expensive. And it's very difficult because that's to be funded entirely privately. And so if people get to a point where they can go to a boot camp for three months or four months and all of a sudden get a credential that can get them a higher paying job, the reality is a lot of people are going to do that. And the thing that's stopping a lot of people from doing that now is they can't get federal loans to pay for it. And so therefore it's taking out private loans and helping to figure out how to subsidize that to pay for it. This pilot program is one of the most important things happening right now in online ed. If, if you're a player in this space, you're watching it. Um, very, very curious how it's going to play out. It could stay in pilot mode for a long, long time. They haven't been entirely clear exactly when the next step's going to be. Um, but if that opens and for-profit companies can access federal aid specifically for certificate-based and skill-based offerings, um, and they're going to do that, I don't know if that'll happen. I would be, I'd be shocked if it did happen anytime soon. But if it does, that's a, that's a really big game changer. And so the, the thing I'm watching from that perspective is the design and the code taught by code academies, uh, your, your general assembly, your, your iron yard, your Udacities, um, that to me is a very, very interesting space uh, worth watching. Very interesting. What is the, um, just as a personal inquiry question myself, yeah. what <laughs> those not, you said they have to have a nonprofit partnership. Yes. So, so. Uh, right, they basically partner with the nonprofit university um, SNHU entered into a partnership with one. A handful of others did this within the pilot. And so they partnered together, essentially. Um, to be candid, I don't know the depth of the relationship. Um, and I, I know that essentially they're, sh- they're sharing the relationship with the accrediting body. Um, that It's the accreditation that allows them to access the federal loans. I will say um, it's not a, not a relationship I'm, I'm fully um, unaware of as far as understanding at its depths. Um, as far as exactly what it takes, but it is that relationship with an institution. So they essentially can kind of slide under their accreditation, which is what allows them to get graced in to get federal aid. Great. Well, I want to get back to marketing a bit um, because of your expertise and um, because I think it's a valuable conversation to have uh, regardless of whether you're going into the online ed space or not. Um, You mentioned um, tapping into emotion. Um, in marketing. And um, I know that you have some other uh, pro tips on more on the kind of technical side of where you should be thinking about where you should be putting your marketing dollars, um, what your marketing strategy, uh, what that mix should look like. So uh, when you say institutions need to rethink their marketing strategy to win in the online space, um, what are some of those things that they can do today to make that happen? Really, really great question. This is like right right in my wheelhouse. I love this one. Um, so understanding where institutions can win today, there have absolutely been some shifts. Um, and, and the thing is that they need to understand where they can win and where they can't. Um, and so the first thing I would say is, you know, one of the primary lead drivers behind most online programs right now is pay-per-click. Um, paid search is just a huge, huge driver. Um, so first off, paid search should be playing a role. But the reality is the keywords that people were able to win on in paid search years ago, they can't necessarily today. So online MBA is just too expensive in a lot of cases. It's just not something that we can bid on. But what you can bid on is those really more finite finite options. So online MBA 
in healthcare management. I'm an MBA in sports management. And so understanding that, well, we can share the online MBA core, and so we can pick up those students, but getting them off of the specialty keywords, that's the first thing. You need to really, really go after more of those low-volume nationwide keywords that are really specific um, because that's one of the ways you can afford to play. It's just so hard to compete with the biggest players otherwise. Um, the, the other one that's always interesting is, is you know, uh, PPI or paper inquiry or CPI cost per inquiry where you're actually working with directories. Uh, this is always a controversial conversation, but I will actually say that they, they really play a critical role. Uh, and the reality is that if you want to grow, um, measuring and, and predicting demand is very difficult initially. And so having a directory partnership can actually help a lot. And so a lot of partners will start with heavier directory and pull that back. But the reality is that it gives you something for your apps to work on now, even if it converts at a lower rate. Um, the other thing I will say, even on the local level, is if you have the broader breadth of programs, traditional media is a huge, huge player. Um, so if you can get into the traditional space, it's a huge place to win. There's actually not a lot of institutions, very few na uh, nationwide on traditional media, but even locally, you should look within your markets, who's really running television and not that, <coughs> excuse me, uh, branded athletics television about campus experience, but really specifically targeting more towards adults. Um, that is an opportunity. The challenge is you need enough of a program offering to make that kind of wide megaphone approach of traditional media work. For those that have, that's what really helps scale. And so behind the success of a lot of online growth right now has been institutions that have a broad enough portfolio of programs that they can successfully operate in traditional media and still drive a cost per enrollment of $3,500 or less. That's been a huge secret. Um, but all of that said, I would say that the thing, if I share anything else, is there's a really a concept that we talk about at Helix I think is so important, which is one voice. And it's the fact that the market is more competitive and complex than ever. And the reality is, and it's spooky, today will be less competitive than tomorrow will be. And so it's consistently getting more and more competitive. And so really for us, what we talk about the fact is that even when you market your online programs, it has to elevate your campus programs. And when you market your campus programs, it has to elevate online. And so where and how can you communicate a branded message that is a high tide that rises all ships? Because you need to maximize every dollar invested in media. So every dollar needs to be brand direct. It needs to elevate your brand and also direct response and drive your business. And so that's a concept we talk about a lot with folks uh, because what's happened is so many online programs have been built independently of campus and then they market totally separately. Um, and that's a huge problem. Uh, another example that I talk about is a, a single graduate program uh, buying a billboard. Uh, generally speaking, and there are exceptions, but generally speaking, traditional media like out of home, like a billboard, you should never use to market an individual program. If you're buying a billboard on the highway, it's your chance to talk to everybody. So how about you talk to everybody and tell them about everything that you offer? But are that you happen. colleges of business right now directly? <laughs> There's a lot of that. Um, I will say one of the ex exceptions is uh, healthcare, RN to BSN. We have seen some success there. But generally speaking, like don't use your dollars to speak to a very finite audience if you have the opportunity to speak to many people. So it's that level of kind of finding efficiency uh, that has to happen. You know, I wish there was a kind of, again, I said before, a silver bullet approach. Um, but if you're going to win, it's simply because you're going to be smarter and you're going to look at it at a more granular level. You're going to comb through it in a deeper dive. Um, and it's just going to be more strategic. Um, and the last ones, and we can get into them separately, but I would say is um, remarketing is huge. Retention is now huge. And then really thinking about whether or not you need partnerships and what you can do in-house and not making a conscious choice is key. Uh, but all that, I'll leave one more tip. The tip I always I love to share is don't sell the industry, sell the institution. Uh, that's the number one mistake. The number one mistake being made in online education right now is that people sell the industry, not the institution. What I mean by that is have you, how many times have you seen banner ads, 100% online programs? Well, that's just selling online education. You're, you're selling the modality. You're not selling you. So it really, whenever possible, at as many touch points as possible, we need to communicate 
Why us? What's our differentiating factor? Why should people choose our institution? Not choose to study online or not. We're not in the business of convincing people which modality is right for them. You know, we're in the business of making sure people know that if they want to pursue their education, we, insert your institution's name, is the right partner for them. Um, that is so, so key um, because otherwise, if you're just saying 100% online programs, you're only communicating to the person that wants to buy right now this second. I mean, that's a very small portion of the population. We want to communicate to people with a message that gets in their head and they start to think about it. And then two days later, they're like, you know what? I really think that message they said resonated with me and who I am. I'm going to go look into more information. So um, don't sell the industry, sell the institution. Number one tip of the whole show, most likely. We'll see so far. Well, there is a lot in there. And I think uh, we're, we're making some really great points that are uh, not just for online ed, but for whatever program you're you're pitching, right? So um, I want to dig into that a little bit more. And I want to ask you about, you know, what it takes in 2016, what it has been taking in the past five years to be able to communicate these mission-driven messages to shift our our traditional communication to think like marketers in higher ed. Um, it, I think it takes a reorganization for most places. Um, it takes uh, the it takes new budgets, um, the ability to bring in new partnerships, um, and you know there's a, some fundamental shifts that have to happen on campuses. So, um, what about those kind of partnership opportunities and the ability for institutions to kind of shift the way they work um, to make online ed marketing or you know program programmatic marketing in general happen? Totally. I, I think that's actually one of the most important questions. And the reason it's not answered enough is because it's such a big challenge to take on. But how are we structured? What is our strategy? And why are we doing things? Yeah. Um, and, and, it's not, you know, <laughs> we're not, uh, we're not nimble. We're not agile. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a huge problem. I mean, I would say that like when we look at it, there's essentially sort of four ways to go about growing your online programs from a structure perspective. Uh, you know, the first is that you can grow your in-house team. Uh, building an in-house agency, running things in-house. That's what we did at SNHU. Uh, we had a digital partner that, that we only had in 2013 and then a media buying partner. Everything else you ever saw was done by some amazingly talented folks all working internally for Southern New Hampshire University. Um, so that's one option. Another option is the best in breed approach where you hire partners for specific channels. You know, I'm going to get a digital agency and a social agency and a TV production company, but we'll do everything else ourselves. Um, then you have like an agency of record model where somebody oversees everything. Uh, there are some benefits to that. One of those, I think, is that it, th those partners are channel agnostic because uh, when's the last time your digital agency called you up and said, hey, you know what? We think we're inefficient. Take some of your money back. It uh, doesn't happen a lot. And so when an AOR relationship, you're able to shift those spends from channel to channel, and that's a real benefit. Um, and then the fourth option is, is OPM, uh, outsourced program management of like, okay, we're going to partner with an outside company to help us launch, grow, and manage our programs, everything from potentially course development to marketing to hiring faculty, the whole thing. Um, that's a rare decision and a long-term decision, but sometimes the right one. What's most important, I think, is not which one you choose, whether it's in-house, best in breed, AOR, or OPM. What's most important is that it's a conscious choice and that you've had a conversation internally because those choices are going to impact how you grow, how fast you can grow, and some of the ramifications even financially on your institution. And there's pros and cons to all of them. Obviously, we have some of our own opinions at Helix, but, but that said, it's about what's right for you. And it's about finding the right, right partnership level, even if it is entirely, we're going to do it all in-house. Um, the challenge, I think, that's most important is in making it an intentional choice. And the institutions that are winning right now are. All of the institutions that, that we really talk to, the ones whether they're coming to work for Helix or people I just know in the industry on the outside. I was over at Upsia last week 
in San Diego and talked to some, some fantastic folks from some really great institutions. The folks that are winning right now in online education are making a conscious choice about how they want to attack this. What is their strategy? And they know exactly what they're doing and why. And so whatever you choose, my biggest advice is make a choice and make it the right one for you um, because you know, not making a choice is making a choice. Um, and inaction in itself can be action. And so I think that that's what I would say is that, that all four have great opportunities. Truthfully, it's like a whole show to tackle all of it. Um, but happy to at any point talk about all that. But I think making a choice of which partnership is right for you or not is so, so critical um, because people are doing that right now. They're reevaluating, thinking about it. Um, and if we're not, you know, we're kind of put on our heels and, and making that choice of we're going to look at that, that's about getting to the balls of your feet and be able to move a little bit faster. So uh, with any of those organizations, uh, organizational models in place, um, what, you know, what's the focus? What's the key for moving forward? Sure. I, I think it's really about understanding, first and foremost, are marketing your current programs. What's the mix that works? How are you going to launch, grow, and manage your new programs? Because new programs are going to be critical to reaching that mass to get to traditional media. Um, but really, ultimately, it's about ensuring that someone, whether it's in your company or on the outside, is looking at you at the entirety of your marketing strategy. So always starting at the forest and then moving into the trees. You know, what is our spend? What is our cost per enrollment? How are we doing? And then within that, let's look at both programmatic performance, but also channel performance, attribution of, with direct attribution, which like a pay-per-click is easy. They click this link, they fill out the form. And then really looking at blended attribution of, okay, TV is really tough. It's going to come in as organic traffic, either directly to your homepage or through branded search. And sometimes you have to pay for that twice because it's branded search and they click an ad. And so understanding that is so important. That's the most important thing is who is watching your spend. And so the thing I always tell people is how has your campaign performed in the last 72 hours? And what have you done to improve it? And if you can't answer that question of here's how it performed and I made this change yesterday, that's a challenge. Someone needs to be making that level of calls because if we're not responding as fast as we possibly can, other people are, and they're just going to optimize us. Um, so, so that would really be, I think, kind of the biggest thing I would look at. Yeah, and if we're not looking at the, the marketing mix as a, whole, as a whole, all of the offers, regardless of online, on campus, and we're not looking at that at the cabinet level mm -hmm. in the institution, if you have marketing buried seven layers beneath uh, your, your uh, campus grounds, um, there's, there's no way to move that conversation forward, right? It has yeah. to be at the top. Yeah. Great. So um, we've got a great question coming in from uh, co-host of mine, Rob Zinkin. Um, he wants to hear a little bit more about retention um, because we know retention is super important, especially in online ed. Um, so where, um, you know, with the marketing lens, um, where can marketers have an impact and retention? So super good question. And, and retention is a huge conversation. And, and what's up, Rob? It's awesome to see you on the back channel. It was great seeing it. I saw him at AMA this year, too. It was actually a highlight for me. Um, so there's a, a lot to unpack in retention. There's a lot of things happening in the retention space that's more in the coaching space that's a little bit different. Um, but there's a lot in marketing, too. Um, and so I'll, I'm just going to kind of throw out a, a few things kind of uh, in any order and we'll see how they come out. Um, one of the first things is a very enrollment specific one, which is that when you do connect with a student, it's really critical that we understand what's driving their desire to pursue their education and that we actually capture that information in a CRM. And the reason is from a retention perspective, we as the folks at the top of the funnel bringing people through need to capture the motivations behind why a student is persisting. And so when there is a challenge, we can, and with the most sincerity and politeness, not in any other manner, remind them of why they originally engaged with us and really make sure that they're making the right decision if they choose not to persist. Um, beyond that, there are some amazing things with actual retention campaigns. One of the things that made me the proudest to be a part of SNHU 
was the just unbelievable student success team that they have built there. I mean, it was just an honor to walk through the floor with the advisors that were there and the student success coaches and what they did. But what we really tried to capture with that was was provide a lens into the student experience. And so if you go online and look at any of the social media uh, from Southern New Hampshire University, it is just covered in real student content and real stories. And so one of the things that we uncovered is that so much of that organic content conversation that's taking place in marketing, the necessity of being authentic, so much of that doesn't just need to communicate to prospects. What prospects are really looking for is a rich, exciting, rewarding community that inspires them to pursue their education. And so what we can actually do is create content for our own community that perfectly reflects exactly what a prospect is looking for. And so it was that kind of mindset that came across, well, let's deliver diplomas to online students. You know, let's go ahead and shoot videos with real students sharing their stories. You know, it's not just about this amazing outcome of an intangible, untouchable CEO who's so successful, I as an adult could never reach there because I I've struggled in school before. No, it's about sharing with me the adult that just got the fourth A in a row and he or she has a family and works two jobs. Sharing that story on social media doesn't just rally the community around that person, but I as a prospective student, when I come into social and I look at that, all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I want to be a part of this place. And when we were at SNHU, one of the things that we saw was up to 40 to 45% conversion rate for people that asked questions on social media. So if you raised your hand and asked a question, we immediately knew you were a high priority prospect. And so the reality is they were already going there looking for that like lens into the, who we really were. Um, so from a retention perspective, I think a lot of it is identifying the milestones for students and really, really ensuring that we're elevating those and making them exciting. Um, and then beyond that, I would just say supporting our internal coaching, advising support staff with really rich content that, that encourages students to continue. You know, there's a lot of great data points that show where students struggle. So I think that um, I know I probably only half answered Rob's question, and, and I hope if folks in the back channel have better ideas than me, um, bring them on, because I think this is just the beginning of this conversation of marketing's role in retention. Um, but it's one that I think is it's really exciting. Um, and so I really appreciate the question, because I actually think this is one of the areas that, you talk about where we're going in the next two to four years, this is an area that, that people are going to start winning at in a real meaningful way. Great. Well, you know, I think um, it that... Uh, that 40% number is a huge number. Um, and I can only imagine, you know, not just the conversion rate on that student, but their ability to bring in other students, right? We know how strong uh, word of mouth is and personal connections, especially on social. Um, mm -hmm. So if you think about um, the referral end of what can happen um, from these kinds of marketing campaigns, um, you know, what can, what can we look at as far as a uh, referral rate? Do you have some more brilliant uh, metrics on that? <laughs> yeah. So, so I would say first and foremost, uh, when I thought about the most important thing earlier, uh, this is now the new most important thing. Nice. Uh, but, but to me, it's the fact that um, the referral rate is the single most important metric in marketing online education today, the referral rate. And so any of you on the back channel, if you want to tweet Corinne Jolie, she asked me yesterday what, what I was going to share is the most important metric. I know she, she's going to have to watch the archive, she said. But the answer is the referral rate. And this is really, really important. So what I mean by referral rate is you essentially can look at it sort of two ways. Uh, it's the percentage of incoming students who were referred by someone they knew. So the primary source is word of mouth. You can also say referral rate is the percentage of current or former students who have referred the institution. So the second part of that, you can do through surveys, surveying your students and asking, do you refer us? If you do, what do you say? Why? Who do you refer to? But the most important referral rate of incoming students, though, so the percentage of students that come in that say, I came in through word of mouth. My friend or family member really recommended this. 
that's the single most important. And I will say here's why. Because the scary truth is there's a level of a commoditization that's happening in post-secondary education. When there are 450 online MBAs, are you honestly going to price compare? You're not, right? And when you go to Google, maybe you're going to stay in the top two, three results or click on an ad. But you also have a really good chance of going on and getting overwhelmed. Because when you have 400, 500 choices, there's no possible way to know what the right choice is for you. So what do we do? We turn to the people we trust. We turn to our friends, our family members, our coworkers, our neighbors. And when we're talking to them at the mailbox and they're saying how they had such an amazing time in their graduate master's you know, or their, excuse me, their marketing program, we're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. We're talking to somebody at church and they're telling us, you know, I was able to finish my bachelor's degree. I've been out of school for 20 years. We ask where? And then they gush about their advisor and the faculty. That isn't just something that I'm saying or pontificating. Statistically, it's happening. We are seeing institutions that had as low as 10 to 15% referral rates now moving up to 35, 40, or 45% of all students coming in through referral. That is crazy. That is a referral revolution right now in higher ed. And it's because there's so many options, that saturation in the market that we talked about. And so the most important thing is experience. The most important thing is your students, your alumni, and what they're saying. I mean, there's times I was uh, very, very lucky. I got to be in Savannah, Georgia last spring uh, with a wonderful new student who was a police officer. In his first six months, he recruited six fellow officers to all join Southern Hampshire University. Six months, seven students, only one of them brought in through advertisements. The rest all brought in through word of mouth. And that's both anecdotal and qualitative, but there's also quantitative statistics that are showing across the board, the institutions that are winning are seeing higher and higher referral rates. And so even that goes back a little bit to Rob's question about retention, but it's also retention and marketing together. And this idea that really investing in the student experience is providing very real ROI for institutions right now. Um, and, and I'm telling you right now, the referral rate is the number one thing to watch. If you don't know your referral rate, figure it out. You can do a how heard survey with your current students that are coming in. You can also survey your current and past students to ask them if they have referred and start tracking that on a quarterly basis. That's the best thing that you can do to really start to understand what percentage of your leads that are coming in are organic. And that's just such a huge player. And I only see that going up. There's a real northern trajectory with that from a percentage perspective. Um, so referral rate to me, numero uno of the show today. Excellent. Well, we've got, we've got other hosts tuning in. They're, they're asking some hard-hitting questions today. Okay. So uh, we gotta, we got to give it up to our, our co-host here. Tony Duty. Um, you know, I, I think he's asking about uh, if we can sell or distinguish quality of learning experience uh, and if there are emerging engagement methods that are effective. Um, so we got like a heavy hitter student affairs brain coming to you right now. Um, yeah. But, you know, um, he's he's keen on these market on the marketing sense. So um, qualities. I mean, it. it dovetails so nicely with these referral rates because if you have a shitty experience you're um not going to refer other people right totally. so um, we're seeing it. institutions that are struggling a lot of times have a lower student satisfaction rate so that's dead on right yep uh, so uh so to his question um are, yeah. are you noticing anything on the you know the experience end and the engagement end um that is contributing to these <clears throat> And I, I'm sure you can pull from um, the student success team at SNU to give yeah. us pro tips. So a couple things with that. So, so first, uh, Tony, welcome. Thank you so much for joining, man. I really appreciate it. Um, so the question is so great. Can we sell or distinguish quality of learning experience? I'm going to unpack that just a little bit. So the first question is, should we? So the reality is, for the most part, should we sell experience at all? 
Um, for the vast majority of institutions, I'll be candid, it depends on your messaging hierarchy, right? First touch communications, like a, a billboard or display advertisement or a television ad, for the most part, unless you're really good, and we'll get into that in a second, the reality is students are looking for outcome, right? And so to me, it's should we sell the quality of the learning experience, even if it is quality, and should we? So for a lot of institutions, I honestly think in many cases, the answer is going to be no, at least until you get to the search site, until you get into the nurturing campaign, you get an email, until you get on the phone with the rep potentially. So the first one is, should you? That said, I actually think in a lot of cases you should if you can stand behind it. So can you distinguish the learning experience? First and foremost, to unpack that a little bit further, I would say that the learning experience is not your LMS. The, learn, like the learning experience is not your LMS. And I say that because the reality is students do not choose institutions because of Blackboard or Canvas. Uh, they don't, not in any meaningful statistical volume perspective. Um, and so it's important to put that context on, and I'm sure Tony has it too. When we talk about learning experience, I'm on the same page he is. I'm talking about the full thing, you know, the entire experience from beginning to end. And the answer to that is yes, but. And I say that the but is that you don't sell the what, you sell the feeling. You can absolutely sell the feeling of the experience. And so when we were at SNHU, one of the things we talked about is we positioned ourselves on we care, um, which is a pretty tough thing to position on, right? Like you never go to a conference and you're like, okay, raise your hand if you don't care about your students and hand and hands go off. Like that doesn't happen. Everybody cares. And so what we talked about is can we create experiences that capture what it feels like to be a student? And so, of course, the best thing we can do is, one, deliver diplomas to online students, but two, all the commercials that we did during my chapter there were real students and alumni. We went to their homes, to their communities. We held pop-up student unions and documented it. That was very intentional, and the reason was we were developing what we call in the ad world tone and manner, right? So tone and manner is what's your style? What do you feel like? What's your attitude and your energy? What are all the intangible things when I see content from you? So can we distinguish the quality of the learning experience I think yes, but I think it's much more distinguishing on, on what it feels like rather than actually what it literally is. Um, that would be my kind of POV on that piece. Excellent. Um, well, Tony's got some follow-up shows for you. So yeah, Tony, look me, man. I'm ready. I'm back in the high reds live saddle. It's like it's been two years. Now I'm like two weeks. I'm ready to get right back in the swing of things. <laughs> Good. Um, so I want to shift gears a minute, and we've got about 10 minutes to um, get as much out of this as we can. Um, I want to make sure we get to some predictions for the future, because um, I know Back Channel um, is, is eager for that. So um, shifting gears for a minute, let's hit on a few key areas of the space, um, because I want to get your thoughts. Yeah. So what do you predict we'll see happen with the for-profit space? You already dropped a huge... Uh, uh, decline um, statistic on us earlier in the episode. You know what is going on there? Sure. So um, within the for-profit space, as you mentioned, statistically we're seeing a huge decline. A lot of that market share is being eaten up by the bigger nonprofit players, WGU, SNHU specifically. When you look at the state growth, it's huge in Utah and New Hampshire. So my answer is many will continue to struggle, but some will continue to succeed. You know, first and foremost, one of the caveats I think has to be made is there is not like a nonprofit good, for-profit bad. Uh, thing happening in our industry right now. The reality is the quality of the experience and care varies on both sides of the aisle. Um, and so this, the reality is many for-profits will struggle, but some will continue to really, really succeed. Uh, Grand Canyon is going to continue to do great. They actually tried to move nonprofit recently and were actually denied. Um, you know, there are, there are players in that capella that are just going to keep doing a great job, and they've been doing a great job, and they're going to get really rewarded for that, I think, in performance. But when we look at the ones that are struggling, one of the things I think we're going to see is people are expecting closures. 
you know, they're reading a lot of Chronicle and Inside Higher Ed. And don't get me wrong, there will be and there have been some. But what we're really going to see is what, what happens in the commoditization market. We're going to see consolidation. And so what I really expect to happen in the next 12 to 18 months is we're going to see for-profits start to merge more and really come together to centralize operations, in, enrollment, to separate, centralize their, their advising and really find cost-saving initiatives. But, but really, beyond that, I don't also anticipate significant changes in the regulatory system. Um, the election could play a huge role in that. Um, on the off chance, Bernie makes it really to the final ballot. Um, he's, he's weighed in a lot more heavily in the uh, education space with some of his thoughts. Um, but generally speaking, I, I don't anticipate significant regulatory changes. So it's just a matter of the market declining. Some continue to struggle and a few really continuing to win. Great. So what about um, traditional residential campuses? Um, where, where do we see them moving in the future? Sure. So from an online education perspective in the traditional market, I think it's all about revenue and not just revenue of new revenue coming in, but maximizing the revenue that you have. So I see a really a rise in blended and hybrid programs, specifically around summer course offerings, institutions trying to look at that six year completion time, for instance, and shrink that down to four and a half or five. So helping students find ways to take overload classes especially within state systems. We're seeing some interesting things happening at Open SUNY. I think the UC system has continued to sit on an opportunity where they could offer more uh, taking classes between campuses, which they've been doing a little bit of. Um, and so really, I think it's all about um, time to completion on the traditional side and really helping ensure graduation rates. Um, so I think that's where the focus is. Is It's not fully online undergraduate programs for, for the millennial generation or the younger half of the millennial generation. It's really about making sure the students that are coming in when a life event happens, we find an online opportunity to help them finish and finish faster. Great. And um, how about these certificate programs and boot camps? I know we we got to this a little bit earlier, but anything else um, you want to add to their shift? Yeah, I, I would just say two things. One, I see more institutions trying to enter this space. So traditional institutions trying to come into the certificate and the boot camp space. Two, as the economy improves, I see more demand growing for this, actually, just because the speed to completion is so short. Uh, if you can finish something in, in three months rather than two years, it's a huge difference. Um, I see this space uh, very quickly getting oversaturated, very expensive. Uh, and I think with a big conversation to be had in the boot camps is where is the quality? And that's the question that needs to be answered the next 12 to 18 months is where are the outcomes? Where is the quality? Because so many voices are going to come into the space. The market's not going to know who to trust. Do you, I mean, okay, so here's another uh, selfish question for me, but um, is this where continuing education fits into um, where we have, you know, many of our institutional missions are to engage our students in lifelong learning. Um, is, is this, you know, certificate boot camps, uh, we might see an opportunity to retarget alumni. Absolutely. It, it definitely can be, and it should be. You're right. For a lot of institutions, it's about, it, it needs to be missionaries. It needs to be about the mission and what's driving it um, is missional. And so the idea is definitely that we need to know why we're doing it. But I think you're very right, especially that there's a lot of folks that are looking to tool up. And so we've actually had this conversation with clients before. You're very right that especially can I, can I tool up in project management or specifically in a finance area or these little areas that are going to help advance my career further. That is a very good point that a lot of institutions right now, you complete the formal degree and then you're sort of on your own. But we all know having worked in the workforce for a while, you definitely reach points in your career where you need to have increased skill to match the challenges you're facing. And I think a lot of people would say they didn't feel like they could turn back to their traditional alma mater to get further support for that. Um, I, I haven't seen some people playing deeply in that space, but I'd love to. I think it's a really, really great call. And I think it's one that would really fit well with what a lot of our institutions are doing. Good, good. Me too. Okay, so um, we didn't talk about competency-based education, and this was, you know, uh, I think last time we had you, um, 
years ago. We were talking about competency-based education, and there's so much happening with it. Um, yeah. So again, we might need to um, we might need to come back to this, but um, there's there's still a lot of buzz in the space now, um, and I just want a quick check-in on where we're at and what you see happening. So yeah, and, and sorry to not get to this one sooner, but I'm super excited to mention it. So competency-based education, CBE, has obviously been around for a long time. Uh, Western Governance has done some phenomenal work in this space. Uh, SNHU, uh, you know, very worthily does gets a lot of credit for the work with College for America. Capella has FlexPath, but more and more institutions are looking to move to this space. I'm going to caveat and say I have some very personal opinions on CBE, uh, but they come from the POV of a marketer. And I say that because there's increasing interest. And from a, from a pedagogical perspective, like, that's great. Uh, I really think understanding why we are tied to a credit hour is so important. And the reality is that so often we shouldn't be measuring the time we spend in a seat, but the amount of skill that we actually can demonstrate. So from, from a pedagogy perspective, um, I'm very excited. I think self-paced is really great. I think the ability to demonstrate skill set is really great. From a marketer's perspective, there's massive challenges. And, and a, the, one of the first challenges is that typically what we're seeing in the CBE space is this move to low-cost models, $5,000 associates, $10,000 bachelors. The problem is if you're not doing a B2B play and actually working with corporate partnerships, if you're working to the market, a lot of times we're seeing a, a pretty much similar cost per enrollment to acquire the student. And yet your product, your CB experience, might cost a quarter of what your regular degree would. And so from the economic perspective, I have not seen it work in a lot of places because I feel like what's happening is it's a low-cost offering that either we can't, we run at a loss or we simply can't provide the level of services students need once we have them because we're trying to keep our overhead so low. And that's really important because persistence is really, really low for a lot of CBE players. I mean, I've heard it as low as like 5% graduation rate in a couple pockets. Um, now, not in all cases, and there's some that aren't, and, and I'll say even you know, Western governance has been around the time, they're, they're more tied to the credit hour. But there is a level that um, what scares me is as a marketer, how do we drive interest in these programs? Because there really is a race to the bottom from a cost perspective. Um, and so I really look at that from the business model, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. I see a lot of people still rushing into the CBE space. Um, I think a couple of things that will save it is I think we're going to see more and more a shift that maybe CBE can be a little more of a prior learning assessment tool. And then ultimately, I think what we may see is that CBE could be blended into a traditional program. And maybe you can actually use that for the areas where you have competency to demonstrate it. And then you're moving back into a traditional experience, potentially, into classes where you need to really have more attention. Um, I, I think that's an area we're going to see growth. I think we're going to see a lot more attention, a lot more dialogue. I hope we see some people get it right. Um, but I, I just think from an economic perspective, I keep struggling with how it's going to really work. Great. Well, I always appreciate actual business models um, when we're talking about what we think we should do in higher ed. So I appreciate that. And we've covered so much in the past hour. Um, I, I hope you can leave us with, you know, let's, let's tie this up in a bow for our viewers. Um, leave them with a few predictions when it comes to the state of online education. What do you see happening over the course of next year? Yeah, uh, you bet. And this has been an absolute blast, Ashley. So I really appreciate you having me on. Um, so a couple things that I see when I look forward. Um, demand's going to continue to decline. Statistically, it will. The economy will continue to improve. Supply will continue to rise. So today is the best day as a marketer you're going to have in a long, long time because our industry is going to be increasingly more competitive, more complex tomorrow than it was today. So institutions are going to keep launching the same programs over and over and over again. They're not going to be able to make them work economically. So people are going to launch a program, try to bid on the keyword, not be able to afford it, not see the class, and then start over. And unfortunately, with 4,000 college and universities in this country, we're going to see a lot of that happening. For the institutions that are already winning, they're going to continue to win. Your SNHU, your ASU, your WGU, your Rutgers Online, Drexel, you're going to see them continue to win. 
Um, the for-profit space as a whole will continue to decline, but I'll challenge all of you to not look at it, just nonprofit and for-profit, but really dig in a little bit deeper. Uh, I think CBE, many institutions are going to chase that further. I hope they find something that I don't see. Um, and if it's out there, I think there are the right minds in history to find it. So I, I really look forward to being proven wrong, but I worry that we might just be chasing things a little bit in that space. Um, and then I'll say for a handful of us, uh, and I'm talking about maybe a few dozen, maybe a few dozen out of 4,000, uh, they're going to find a way to really be a significant player in their space. Um, and that's going to come specifically from really, really, really smart marketing uh, from first and foremost winning at home, then regionally, then winning on the road nationally, figuring out the right integrated media strategies, offering the right programs to the right audiences, and then delivering the right message on the right channel to the right audience at the right time. That messaging hierarchy structure, there's going to be, and I mean it, a few dozen maybe that get this thing right and grow in a meaningful way. A few of the rest of us will squeak by and attempt to maintain our current enrollment numbers, and a lot will suffer from decline. Um, and that'll just be a matter of not having as robust a plan as possible. So. All that said, the thing I like to leave people with, and I mean this one sincerely, I always tell institutions, if you want to win in the next eight to 10 years, you have to win in the next three to five. If you want to win in the next eight to 10 years, you have to win in the next three to five. And the reason is, as we continue to have more and more programs enter the space, we're going to see that referral rate continue to go up. And the institutions that are already offering that education are going to be leverage their existing student body to deliver low-cost, organic, high-quality leads. And those that don't have that student body are going to have to go to PPC and just to directory alone to try and fund everything. And they're going to find that economically they can't make that work. That those channels are phenomenal when they're part of a broader integrated media strategy. And so I really think most importantly, what we're going to see in the next year is a few dozen are going to start to really get it right. And some players are already are. Um, but unfortunately, there's kind of two sides of this thing, those that are figuring it out and those that haven't. And then those in the middle, there's a few that are going to cross from one side to the other. So um, I, I think we're actually going to see a lot happening. But most importantly, you're going to see a continued saturation. I mean, I'm not kidding when today is the best day you're going to have in all 2016 as a higher ed marketer, because tomorrow and next month, it's only going to get more competitive. Thank you for shining a light on uh, our future, and it's always a pleasure to have you on. Um, I wish we could do this every week like we used to right. back in the day, right. but, you know, we're getting old. So, um, Seth, thank you so much again. Um, for everyone who tuned in, thank you for, uh, thank you for the questions. Uh, thank you for being here with us for an hour today. Uh, thank you, as always, to our program sponsors, Funnelback and M. Stoner. And uh, just a quick plug for our next episode coming up on Wednesday, April 20th. Tony Duty speaking with Peter Lake about higher ed law and Title IX. Um, really important discussion. Um, always great to have uh, Tony bring on our, our legal friends here. So uh, thanks again, Seth. Thank you, viewers. And we will see you next time on Higher Ed Live.